Hello and welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. This week, tragedy in Texas as yet another school shooting claims the lives of nearly two dozen people, including many young children. We'll look at what happened, what we know about the shooter, and the possibility of changing gun laws or mental health guidelines. Plus, a recap of a wild week at the polls that has tested former President Trump's grip on the Republican Party. And a visit to the southern border as the debate over Title 42 and immigration reform heats up. All of that this hour, but first, here we go again. 19 children and two teachers are dead after another school shooting, this time in Uvalde, Texas. The tragedy happened at Robb Elementary School and the suspected shooter, identified as 18-year-old Salvador Ramos, is also dead. Joining us now is ABC's M. Wynn, and let's begin with some of the details. What have we learned about what exactly happened? So we understand that the shooter, 18-year-old suspect, did get a hold of two guns. One was an AR, and it seemed to have happened on his 18th birthday, just days before the shooting. On the day of the shooting, we understand that he had shot his grandmother, who had seemingly had taken him in after he had arguments with his mom before that. Shot his grandmother, went on, took the car, which he did not know how to drive, crashed it, and that's when he went into the elementary. He was actually confronted by officers at the school, but they weren't able to stop him. He was wearing body armor. Then he went in, apparently barricaded himself into a classroom and began shooting. So as you said, 19 children dead, at least two adults. And we understand at this point, it's about 17 others who were injured. The president did speak just uh, a, a little bit after the shooting happened. And he gave very emotional remarks. He said, losing a child is like losing a piece of your soul. Of course, he has his own personal a story about that. He seemed frustrated. He seemed angry. And he was urging Congress to pass gun control legislation. But of course, as you know, Jeff, gun control remains stalled on Capitol Hill. He was wearing body armor, as you say. He had this gun. There was another gun involved that we heard about. This sounds like this was very premeditated. This wasn't just something he did on a whim. Right. Certainly, we understand that as we continue to look into the past of this uh, identified assailant, a suspect name of uh, Salvador Ramos, that he seemed to have a lot of red flags in the past. We understand that he wasn't going to school. He basically didn't really go to school for the last year. And at that time, there was a lot of conversation that apparently he had also threatened his past friends. He was stalking people that he had texted some of his uh, former friends that what they were wearing and what classroom they were in uh, to kind of scare them along. And so we understand also on that day that uh, he had been texting a girl about what he was doing during that time as well. He said he shot his grandmother. He said he's about to uh, move on into the elementary. And ultimately, at this point, you know, the shooting is the deadliest school shooting since Sandy Hook in Newtown, Connecticut. And that was almost a decade ago. And this comes just 10 days after a gunman killed 10 black shoppers and workers at a supermarket in Buffalo, New York. So certainly many here uh, in Washington are talking about what's next. What can we do next? We're talking with ABC News correspondent M. Wynn and the shooter, you say he's 18 years old, but this was an elementary school. What connection did he have to this school, if any? So my understanding is that he did used to go to this school, and I believe that officials are still trying to figure out exactly 
why he was here to take some sort of rampage revenge. We're not sure exactly the idea about why that was happening, the motive around this. This is exactly why the authorities are still investigating everything. What's been the reaction in Texas? I mean, certainly we've heard from a number of officials. Many are just absolutely torn apart. The parents, I've seen videos just rushing through the civic center there, not far from San Antonio, looking for their children. My understanding is that they had, some of them had to wait hours before they can figure out what happened to their children at that time. They were running DNA tests at that time. And so certainly just a terrible, terrible tragedy. And I understand Beto O'Rourke even confronted Greg Abbott at a news conference over this shooting. Right, exactly. And so that's some of the response that we've been hearing uh, from the the local officials in Texas. He did interrupt one of Abbott's news conferences and he called this tragedy predictable. He pointed his finger at Abbott and he said, quote, this is on you until you choose to do something different. This will continue to happen. And he was actually escorted out as uh, as members of the crowd were yelling at him. It's high tensions. It's Democrats versus Republicans. It's Republicans here in Washington expressing heartbreak for the shooting. But it doesn't seem like anything has swayed Republicans here or elsewhere about their attitude towards gun reform. They have not signaled that they are changing their minds for this longstanding opposition to tighter gun laws. Although, of course, we have heard from just a few. We've heard from Senator Mitt Romney, who actually did say he's a Republican from Utah, who said he is open to supporting gun control measures. He is open to to the idea of red flag legislation. Um, And so we could see this conversation move forward. But again, ultimately, Democrats just don't have the votes uh, here if they want federal legislation. And so the bottom line is that they're going to have to turn to have this ongoing conversation about the filibuster. Either Democrats are going to need all Democrats to agree to end the filibuster or by some miracle that Republicans will join together in this conversation on gun control measures. But ultimately, until then, for Democrats, there's not going to be new federal gun laws. But again, we have heard from Republicans who say that restricting guns is just not effective and that they should be focusing more on mental health. But what would the mental health aspects be? I mean, what can they do? What are the proposals that we're hearing from the GOP? So Republicans have said a few things. One, that guns in general are a constitutional right, that restricting them is not effective, that rather there should be more guns for more protection. And then some have also said that maybe we should focus on identifying potential dangerous students. Maybe we should focus more on training school employees to deal with these types of emergencies. And something we've heard from past shootings is that maybe we should grant teachers with more access to guns. And so this is what we've heard from Republicans. And if history is of any guide, is that it's very possible that the NRA will say, hey, we are here to help expand the rights to guns to get more protection out there. And so it's possible that we could see some more of that. All right, M. Wynn, ABC News correspondent from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jeff. Now, several days later, questions about the police response have surfaced and why it took so long for officers to eliminate the threat. That part of the story from Elisa Jaffe. 
Investigators in Texas are still trying to piece together Tuesday's deadly shooting at an elementary school. Nineteen children and two adults were killed inside. Texas Department of Public Safety South Texas Regional Director Victor Escalon said they are still trying to figure out why the door the shooter used to enter was apparently unlocked. It appears it was unlocked. So we're going to look at that and try to corroborate that as best as we can. ABC's Dennis Foley joining us on the Northwest Newsline from San Antonio. And Dennis, a lot of criticism and questions when it comes to the time frame. Like, what were police doing when that shooter was inside the school? Yeah, and I think the reason why we got that update today was because of all those questions. And we got more concrete information, which kind of helps explain the how of what happened in Uvalde during that time. So more or less, the newest information that we have was the gunman. He shot his grandmother. We knew that. We knew that he stole her pickup truck, and we also knew that he crashed it about a block or two away from the school. What we learned today was he got out of the pickup truck, out of the passenger side, and he saw some witnesses across the street. They saw him. They called police. He shot at them. But then he walked off with his gun and a bag of ammo, climbed over a fence at the school, and once he got to the school, he started shooting at the school from outside. But Unlike what we heard previously, we heard before that school police had confronted him. That's not the case. There was no police there when he got there. He went to a back door of the school. It was right now, it appears to be unlocked, walked in, went down a couple hallways to a classroom. And that's when shooting began. Was that door supposed to be locked, that entrance to the school that he entered? I guess that's more a school district question. The logical answer would be yes. You would you would think that the schools would have, especially secondary doors, locked where you wouldn't be able to come in from outside. But we don't know. that Maybe that door was intentionally left unlocked or maybe it was forgotten or we don't know the circumstances of that. But how long was he in the classroom shooting these little children and their teachers while police were on the outside of the school? Yeah, so he was in there. It took four minutes from the time he got to the school inside before police got there. And this is the school district police and also the local town police getting there. So it was four minutes while he was inside alone. The officers tried to get in and they heard gunfire. The, the gunman was shooting at them. They had to retreat, take cover, and then try to approach again. But they waited for backup. So you say they tried to get in, but because they heard shooting, they did not enter? According to the director today, he was saying that they did get in there, but with shots being fired at them, they had to retreat back and then take cover. And then they call for backup. And that's what took up to an hour? Yes. And so, yeah, it was an hour until Border Patrol got there. And once Border Patrol got there, they made entry and then they were able to shoot and kill the suspect. What about all the parents who were outside and they hear the shots being fired inside and they're trying to enter the building, but they weren't allowed to? What are people saying about that? Yeah, yeah, that's frustrating. You know, it's one of those things where you know a tragedy is going on. You know there's a gun in the school, and it appeared that, at least visually, that nothing was being done, done about it, even though you had all these resources there. And from a police department standpoint, you know, it might be understandable where it might be unsafe to go in. But at the same time, this is a building full of young children, and the school is in the middle of a neighborhood. You have all these parents who got word of the shooting and neighbors nearby, and they're seeing visually that nothing's being done, and they all want to do something. But interesting that parents made it there before a lot of police. Yes. And and also, that's a characteristic of where Uvalde is located. It's a town of 16,000 people. It's an hour and a half away from San Antonio. And really, it's really an hour and a half away from any major resources. Uh, you have Border Patrol that's nearby, but it's a relatively remote part of the area. ABC's Dennis Foley joining us from San Antonio. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you. 
There are now calls for a federal investigation into the police response to the Texas school shooting. Democratic Congressman Joaquin Castro of Texas sent a letter to the head of the FBI asking the Bureau to investigate the timeline of events. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, a look at those so-called red flag laws. Could this tragedy in Texas have been prevented if law enforcement had the power to restrict the shooter's access to guns? When the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. We continue to cover the tragedy in Texas where a gunman killed 19 elementary school students and two teachers this week. Could a red flag law in the state could have saved the lives of those kids? Once again, here's Elisa Jaffe. It goes beyond, seems to me, a mental health issue. I mean, that, that is the sheer face of evil itself. Texas Governor Greg Abbott calling the 18-year-old suspect in the shooting massacre at an elementary school in Texas a demented person. There are red flag laws intended to remove guns from people with potentially violent behavior. ABC News legal correspondent Royal Oaks joining us. What do these protection orders do, Royal, and would they have even made a difference in this case? Red flag laws that are on the books in 19 states basically say that if you're a family member, an in-law, parent, cousin, whatever, maybe a cop, the district attorney, uh, school officials, you may go to the judge in your jurisdiction and say, hey, your honor, sorry to bother you, but I really think this person who I have in mind has a gun and is potentially violent or mentally disturbed. Let's hold a hearing to see whether you should take the gun away. It's been going on now, as I say, for 23 years, starting with Connecticut's law. And a lot of people credit the laws uh, with saving a lot of lives. But would that have made a difference in Texas? It's hard to say. We know in the very recent tragedy involving the Buffalo shooter, he was not flagged, even though he was interviewed a year ago about a comedy made about a murder or suicide. Then he was released back to his home and school without restricting access to guns. So as to whether it could have prevented Texas, if somebody in his life had realized that he's a ticking time bomb and if they had gone to a judge per a red flag law, which is not in place in Texas, it might have stopped it, but we never know. So they don't even have the red flag law in Texas. Texas is not one of the 19 states that have a red flag law. Of course, now there's a lot of pressure to not only expand the number of states with the laws, make them even tougher, but also there's talk about a federal red flag law. Senator Manchin, uh, who uh, has recently come out in favor of red flag laws, could be a, a key vote in terms of getting that passed in the Senate. Why do they often fail when it comes to court challenges? The gun lobby and those who believe strongly in the Second Amendment rights often resist the idea, with the idea being that this is just a slippery slope. First, you're going to allow people to tell tales and, and make up stories and, and result and have rumors go before a judge and result in somebody losing their right to possess a gun. I think those are the essential objections. But uh, public opinion polls show that about 85 percent of voters do want police to be able to take away guns uh, from people who a judge has found to be dangerous. Now, this person, the suspect in this case, they didn't know about a violent behavior or anything, but there were some hints on Facebook. Steve McCraw heads the state trooper, says the first Facebook post came Tuesday morning. He announced, you know, on Facebook, a post, a message that he was going to shoot his grandmother. And then after shooting the grandmother, the gunman posts again, bragging about the attack. Then another post promises uh, that he's going to shoot up a school. He reported that he had shot her. And after that, he reported that he was going to a school to attack it. 
What are the legal responsibilities of Facebook, Snapchat, and other forms of social media? In general, the courts do not hold social media platforms responsible for speech that might be defamatory, that might be dangerous. Uh, The fact is that uh, people are in a position to see Facebook posts or even stuff that's lurking there in the dark web. And if you get lucky and if you get a hint that somebody is potentially violent, then if you've got a red flag law, you could go to the judge. Even without a red flag law, of course, there are laws against making threats. And so it's not like the police are powerless, but it's very difficult with a a billion exchanges every single day around the world on social media. It's really hard to police that and try to figure out, well, this is one of those communications that really should make us worried enough to go to a judge or the police. You know, we've been saying this for a long time about make the changes, no more prayers, let's hear action. We heard it after Sandy Hook. We heard it a few days ago after Buffalo. We have Beto O'Rourke in Texas is saying this could have been stopped. I could care less whether you're a Republican, a Democrat, or an Independent to stand up right now for yourself, for your kids, for our families. What do you see as the legal problem when it comes to lawmakers? Lawmakers have to just sort of cut through all the noise and recognize that after more than two decades, red flag laws have been credited with saving a lot of lives. Republican Senator Rick Scott of Florida uh, supported the passage of a red flag law after 17 were killed at Parkland High School. And he says that that law has been used 5,000 times to take guns from people deemed to be mentally unstable and dangerous. So seems like a red flag law is something whose time has come. But are there other holdups when it comes to the gun lobby? Well, the gun lobby and supporters of gun rights are always going to uh, stand firm and resist measures that they feel are unreasonable. But the fact is the U.S. Supreme Court, when they finally made the decision after centuries of confusion in that Heller case, uh, the Supreme Court said, yes, the Second Amendment does pertain to private gun ownership, not just people in a private militia with muskets from the 1700s. But the court in the same breath said there are presumptively lawful regulatory measures, whether that's a background check, whether that's no machine guns or bazookas. And now people are going to be saying, well, one or the other lawful regulatory measures is to enforce a red flag law. And those laws have have survived many court challenges in the last two decades. In 2018, Governor Abbott called on state lawmakers to actually consider a red flag law in Texas. But then he backed down after the lieutenant governor and some gun rights activists drew a hard line against it. What is their problem with the law? Their problem is the idea of a slippery slope. Some people believe that when you hear, for example, the Los Angeles Times editorializes, it has in the past, that guns should be banned, period, full stop. If you're a cop and a soldier, fine, you get a gun, but nobody else should have one. People who are gun advocates hear that and they say every supposedly reasonable, uh, lawful regulation on gun rights is really a disguised attempt to move us toward confiscation. Let's have a registry so we know who has the guns and what their addresses are. And next election cycle, when we win big, then the guns are going to disappear. I think that's the basis for a lot of people's objections to a red flag law. ABC News legal analyst Royal Oaks. Thank you, Royal. You bet. That's Elisa Jaffe. When we come back, will gun control be a campaign issue in the midterms? We'll try to answer that question and take a look at this week's surprising primary results when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. The first major primary night of the season was this past week, and Representative Kurt Schrader, a Democratic centrist from Oregon, ousted 
by a progressive upstart, Jamie McLeod Skinner. That was just one of the many surprising outcomes this week. And a lot of the races on the Republican side tested former President Trump's grip on the party. Joining me now is Mariana Alfaro. She is with the Washington Post and has been covering all of this. And well, let's start in that all-important swing state of Pennsylvania. You have a governor's race there. You have a Senate race there. What did we see in the Keystone State? Pennsylvania uh, has been probably the most interesting race so far this year, just because we had, uh, you know, Dr. Mehmet Oz, the famous uh, celebrity physician uh, who had Trump's endorsement in the race for uh, Senate there. And, you know, he um, rallied with Trump, even though the establishment Republicans didn't particularly want him there um, in that position. And I mean, he's very close right now. Um, in the race against uh, businessman Dave McCormick. You know, they're very tight. I think the difference in votes is one of the tightest we've seen. And now that race is going to go off to um, a recount, uh, which is probably one of the most, uh, maybe not shocking, but interesting uh, tidbits that's come out of this election season so far. And as we said off the mm-hmm. top, former President Trump is trying to exert a great deal of influence. He's been endorsing candidates left and right. As you said, he endorsed uh, Dr. Oz there, but his endorsements throughout the rest of the country, hit or miss, he's kind of batting about 500. Nowhere was that more evident than in Georgia. You know, there over the, um, Trump's been trying to oust Georgia Governor Brian Kemp since Kemp refused to help him continue spreading his lie that the election was stolen. You know, Kemp really stood his ground and was like, no, we're not going to overturn the results of the 2020 election in Georgia. And so Trump went ahead and endorsed David Perdue, a former senator uh, from the state, uh, to replace him as governor. But Kemp, what he did to Perdue, you know, it's like Perdue thought he was going to lose by 30 points at best, maybe. Um, He lost by about 50 points. And it also happened in the uh, Secretary of State race in Georgia where um, uh, Raffensperger, um, the, the current Secretary of State, he also won by a lot against Trump's chosen candidate. So these are two Republicans who refused to, you know, bow down to Trump's false claims of election uh, fraud, and they came very victorious uh, Tuesday night. Why is President Trump's grip on the GOP slipping? You know, it I, slipping is interesting because it's definitely working in some places. In Ohio, you know, J.D. Vance, uh, who also did not have the establishment backing, but he did have Trump's backing. He came out very victorious in the Senate race. The Senate primary over there. And so it's kind of hard to tell if it's slipping or it's just not holding on in certain places. I think wherever Republicans think that they have an establishment candidate that kind of leans more towards the McConnell Republicans than the MAGA Republicans, then they have a good hold. And that that depends a lot on the electorate. But then there's places like Ohio where Trump's message is still sounding loud and clear and people are still taking it in and accepting it, where he still has a lot of power over the party. What do these results portend for the general election? Because we're seeing a number of Democrats that uh, are having some surprising wins as well. I would say that President Biden's endorsees are having a kind of 50-50 winning streak right now. And so I think both Trump and Biden are seeing that thing where some of their endorsements are, you know, hitting and, and, and going all the way. And then some of them are just not there yet. You know, some progressive candidates are having better shot, better chances. And then there's uh, more, mm, I don't want to say moderate, but more um, establishment Republicans who are showing Trump that he might not have as strong of a grip on the Republican Party as he thought he did. So are we expecting the results to kind of shift more to the extremes of each party or are we reverting to the median? I think we're going to be close to the medium. November's going to be interesting, and I think it's kind of easier to predict in terms of what the people say about the Biden administration than what um, they specifically think about the Democrats in the race, and that's on the Democratic side. But on the Republican side, um, I think it's still showing that Trump 
uh, grip on the party still there. It's still very strong, but it might not be strong enough to push him full speed ahead in 2024. And of course, the two biggest issues that we're likely to see, at least for now, it looks like Roe versus Wade, and then, of course, the tragic shooting in Texas this past week. Yes, and, you know, right before the draft opinion leak uh, regarding Roe from the Supreme Court, people are saying, you know, inflation is going to be the number one topic in November. It's still polling quite high in the number of, in the list of things that Americans are very worried about. But Roe and the access to abortion shot up to the top of the list, too, after that draft came out. And I know that with the, with the two horrible massacres that we've seen in the last few days. One would also want to think that gun control would go to the top of that list, uh, but we already know that gun control measures are very supported, very popular amongst most Americans, but it's that kind of issue that at this point, it's happened so much, it's happened so often that it, is it really that impactful on elections? It's, it's really hard to tell, just because it feels like so many years have happened since Sandy Hook and nothing's been done. So I think the electorate has kind of given up on that, or not given up, but kind of feeling helpless that, you know, no one in Congress is doing anything about it. So finally, before we let you go, looking at the tea leaves of of these early primaries, do we see the Republicans taking over both chambers this fall? I think that maybe that there's a good chance that they'll take at least one. They're so tight in the Senate right now um, that Democrats really need to flip some seats, including in Pennsylvania. You know, where Fetterman uh, would run against Mehmet Oz or uh, Dave McCormick. The House is looking like they have a good chance of taking that if the establishment doesn't rally behind some of those more progressive candidates, but also go out there and sell this message that Biden has actually gotten a lot of things done in in the bit of time he's been in the White House. And I don't think that that message is being spread as far as it should be from the Democratic Party. All right, Mariana Alfaro, she is with The Washington Post. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Thanks for having me. And we have to take another quick break, but still to come, a trip to the southern border. Republicans call for an end to all COVID restrictions, except the one that keeps immigrants out of the U.S., with the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pojla, and this segment we're going to look south at the southern border. This week, the Biden administration had planned to end the COVID-era border policy called Title 42, but a judge stopped that move in its tracks. Joining me now is ABC's Alex Stone from Los Angeles. And first off, let's get a little background. For those who don't know, what exactly is Title 42? Well, this is the COVID-era health policy, border policy, that went into effect under President Trump, has remained under effect, in effect uh, under President Biden, that essentially said that COVID was a threat to the U.S. and that anybody coming into the U.S. claiming asylum through the, the legal process of trying to, to come to the, the country, that they could be bringing COVID. And then there could be outbreaks in camps and in shelters and, and in the U.S., brought by them. Uh, Yeah, critics of it say it was a way for the Trump administration to essentially shut down the border. Um, Supporters of it say no, it was badly needed uh, at that time. Both sides admit there are some Republicans who say it should never go away, but both sides generally admit it needs to go away. But it is a question of, is it the appropriate time and is the U.S. ready? That Uh, Both sides believe that there will be a surge at the border when it does go away, that when the open sign begins blinking again, that uh, you got two and a half years of people wanting to claim asylum who are going to come to the border and and that it's going to get very, very busy. Republicans say it's the U.S. is not ready yet, that the Biden administration has not done enough to get ready. Democrats say a lot of work has been done and everything is ready. Time to move forward. This is a mayor of Yuma, Arizona, Republican mayor. He tells me this. Title 42 does need to go away. We just need to be prepared for it. And I asked nine months ago from DHS, hey, 
what are we doing? What's the plan? Because we all know it's going away. So, you know, interesting, the arguments are kind of opposite uh, compared to, to normal, Jeff, that Democrats are saying COVID rules have gone away. Open it back up. Everything is back to normal but this. And Republicans are saying, oh, no, there could still be a threat there. And the, the U.S. isn't ready yet to open up the borders. So we're typically Republicans are the ones saying make COVID rules go away. They want this to remain. Democrats who normally are saying keep COVID rules in place. Let's be careful about it. They're generally saying, uh, no, that th- this needs to go away right now. And then both sides hitting head on against each other with this. And the, the judge in Louisiana, a, a, a judge appointed by President Trump in a district that is unlikely to overturn it, saying that the U.S. is not ready and that until further notice, until there is a trial by the lawsuit involving the, the lawsuit that Arizona brought, enjoined by 23 other states, or the Biden administration does something astonishing to get ready for an influx of migrants that Title 42 will remain in place, and that could be for quite a while. Nobody knows how long. We'll get to the ruling here in a minute, but just to be clear, we're talking about people that have a legal right to ask for asylum, correct? Yeah, claiming asylum once they are caught. Most of these are folks who are crossing illegally, and then once they are interdicted by the Border Patrol, then they say, I'm here to claim asylum. Now, legally, they're allowed to do that. That's how the asylum process works. Um, when asylum is allowed, but most are not going to the port of entry because they'll be turned away immediately there. So the only way they're able to do it is to go out into the desert, uh, you know, walk through the the desert, and then when they're caught by the border patrol, then they are saying, "I'm here to claim asylum." Otherwise, the door is shut to them at the ports of entry. And you've been touring the border, and it appears that a lot of these people are coming not necessarily from Mexico, but Central and South America. Yeah, they're coming from all over, and um, so we spent about the last week on both sides of the border, riding with the border patrol, meeting with Mexican officials in shelters on the Mexico side. Uh, on Friday night, I was in Yuma, and um, it, it was interesting. It, this is what it sounded like as all of it was going on you can hear the child yelling mommy mommy it was a non-stop stream of families crossing the border and this was a couple hours after the the judge's ruling that title 42 was going to remain and and most of folks did not know that they they planned on and and still probably do claiming asylum Um, but it was very calm no chases no handcuffs no helicopters it was family after family walking over the border one border patrol agent standing there telling them get in a single file line they did nobody was trying to hide and then like a bus stop border patrol vans would pull up they would fill up the van go to the the processing center to uh, begin whatever is going to go on with them uh, and then another van would pull up and i was asking them this hey, donde eres? Peru. Peru. Donde vives? where are you from I am from Honduras. Yeah, they told me mainly Peru and Honduras. Uh, They told me they walked a long way to get there. Many likely paid coyotes uh, large sums of money to to get them to the border. But there are loopholes in Title 42 that migrants have been instructed to to use. So some of them may be allowed to stay, uh, whether it be that they have an injury or it's a single child. Uh, Most of the families, and there were a lot of them, had uh, young children with them, but they planned on claiming asylum, and and, uh, they were crossing over the border saying exactly that, that that's why they were here. We're talking with ABC's Alex Stone. To that judge's ruling, uh, he said the government was unprepared for the potential influx of migrants, but unprepared isn't 
necessarily a case of law. Under what legal grounds did he say that this needs to remain in place? Yeah, well, he's saying it's going to remain in place right now during the the trial, which could go on for a very long time of uh, did the, the Biden administration can do what it needed to do to, to not create a public emergency. The, the judge saying that he feels like there could be a humanitarian emergency um, if the, the border were to, to open up again. Republicans are saying, and, and the, the mayor of, uh, of Yuma was telling me that, that the Biden administration, to appease what they want, would need to change how immigration is handled. That They would want people, when they come in for asylum and then they're released, waiting for their trial and their hearings, to be released to communities like Seattle, uh, Vegas, L.A., Chicago, Denver. It's not by coincidence that those are liberal cities uh, that, that have been much more open to, uh, to immigration. And so you got a lot of things here that the Biden administration is never going to, to reach the level that some uh, Republicans want and that they're saying that that's what the bar would be before they would allow it to resume. Interestingly, though, Jeff, uh, meeting with the the border patrol, the chief of the San Diego sector, who runs a big chunk of the border in in the south, uh, that he's saying now is the time that they are ready that they cannot continue to have this. Okay, we're going to get rid of Title Forty Two. No, we're not. Yes, we are. No, we're not. Yes, we are. Where they get surges every time. They are staffed up right now. They've been meeting with FEMA. He's been going to Mexico, sharing intelligence, understanding what the. Uh, the the migrant uh, traffic is like right now. He says they are ready, and the band-aid's got to be pulled off. Here's what he told me. We want we we have to get things settled eventually. I guess it's probably the easiest way to say it, um, and and to get on with it, as the, uh, as it as the date changes, we see movement in Mexico. We see movement in other parts of the world, um, in preparation for, and that constant shift. Um, will continue to, to bring additional folks. So where you might think that the Border Patrol would be saying no, that, that we don't want to just open up the borders and deal with it, he's saying, yeah, now is the time that we are ready to go and we can't stay at this readiness level for a, a very long time. One other point, meeting with the head of migrant affairs in Tijuana, he told me that while they disliked President Trump's tough immigration policies, that at least they knew where he stood, that they feel like under President Biden, that in Mexico, the policies are fluid, they are changing, they're being challenged by the courts, that in Mexico, they don't know what is going on in the U.S. And that Tijuana is, most people aren't coming from Tijuana originally. They end up in Tijuana, so that means Tijuana is overrun. Their shelters become full. They they have to provide food and, and everything else to those who are moving through. So his take on it, he says, look, you know, at least under President Trump, we knew what the situation was, that it was anti-migrant, the borders were closed, nothing was going on. But he says under Biden, we're confused, and we don't know day-to-day what the rules are going to be, and he uh, he was saying that that makes it real tough. Finally, as this re- policy remains in place during the trial, when are we expected to have a, a decision out of the court? We don't know. Um, at this point, it could be months, it could be years, depending on if Arizona and uh, Louisiana, they, they are leading it, but uh, others are involved as well, 22 other states. If Arizona wants to draw it out and go very slowly and then take it that way, which, assuming they probably do, maybe waiting to see who the next president is going to be, that uh, that they could go down that road. At this point, 
doesn't seem like the Biden administration is going to be able to appease the, the judge in Louisiana. Uh, and it kind of comes down to the, the trial. Uh, maybe something will change. That district, unlikely to, on appeal, overturn it. And then the Supreme Court right now, unlikely to, to overturn it. So seems pretty steady that, that uh, Title 42 may remain for a while. Maybe they'll come to some kind of an agreement where they do have a plan of how they're going to do it and uh, make it, yeah, maybe you do families first and then women and then men and break it down by age. So it's very slow and not everybody at one time, but... At this point, no indication it's going to be anytime soon. All right, ABC's Alex Stone from Los Angeles. Thank you so much. You got it. Thanks, Jeff. We have to take another commercial break, but when we come back, another person has died in that tragic shooting at a Texas elementary school, but he wasn't a victim of gun violence. We'll explain when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Finally this week, the death toll from Tuesday's school shooting in Texas officially stands at 21. But there was a death of a husband of one of the teachers killed in the shooting that is now blamed on broken heart syndrome. That would bring the death toll to 22. Carlene Johnson reports. Joe Garcia, the husband of Irma Garcia, suffered a fatal heart attack Thursday, two days after his wife died in the mass shooting at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. I see a case at least twice a year, you know, in a case that's bad enough to be admitted to the intensive care unit. This condition can cause sudden cardiac death and is associated 5 to 10% of the time with sudden cardiac death. University of Washington Medicine Heart Institute cardiologist April Stempion Otero says emotions and intense grief powerfully affect our health. Totally biologic. I mean, it's stress hormones, it's inflammation caused by those emotions in our brain. The couple had known each other since the eighth grade and would have celebrated their 25th anniversary this year. They leave four children. Carlene Johnson, Northwest News Radio. And that'll do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.